I don't know if you have discovered the joy of podcasts, um, but I listened to a podcast this week. It was an interview with a historian and biographer named Andrew Roberts. For the past 40 years, he's been writing well-researched books about some of the most significant events and people in the English-speaking world. He wrote a book about the causes leading up to World War II. He's written about Sir Winston Churchill, about Napoleon Bonaparte, and his newest book is about King George III, the last king of America. Like all good biographers, Dr. Roberts sifts through all the ordinary and mundane details of a person's life to try to draw out what's most significant about them. What, what about them has shaped our world? And so he's done this for King George III. You know, his claim to fame is that he was the British monarch who lost control of the American colonies. He's also known for his severe bouts of mental illness that were exacerbated by the various medical, I don't know, attempts at, at bringing him sanity of his day. But Dr. Roberts also gets down to the nitty-gritty, the traumatic childhood George III suffered, and how his experiences shaped him into the person he was, and how the people around him in Parliament and in his court made him make the decisions that ultimately led to our independence and liberty from Great Britain. Dr. Roberts deserves like all kind of acclamation. I hadn't thought twice about King George III, if I'm completely honest, but after that podcast, I was like, man, I'm intrigued. Then I found out his book is 784 pages. And I, when am I, a dad and husband and pastor with a job, when am I going to read 784 pages? And so the podcast, you know, helps me to sound intelligent about something that I otherwise wouldn't have any clue about. But it got me thinking about something different. It must be really challenging taking a significant life like King George III and combing through the dusty archives and libraries in some damp hall in England to get to something worth publishing, something worth saying, something worth reading and investing your time in. I don't know if I could do it. Think about the significant things that have happened to me and the experiences that have shaped me. And I've sat down several times and tried to write out my life story, and it's hard. But then you ask yourself the deeper question. It's one thing to describe the life and significance of the British monarch, who to that point, it was, he was the longest reigning British monarch uh, that had ever been. But how do you describe a person like Jesus? How do you, how do you take him? And, and distill things down to the most significant, the most impactful, the most world-changing events. I mean, everything about him is significant. Words fail. Any of y'all want to write the definitive biography on Jesus of Nazareth? You couldn't pay me enough money to attempt it. I'd forget something valuable. I mean, we're talking about a man whose own biographer and friend, the Apostle John, had to write, just to sort of cover his bases at the end of his book, hey, and Jesus did many more amazing things that if I tried to write them all down, not even the books in the whole world can contain them. How do you do it? How, how do you stand before a crowd of people, 3,100 or 10, and try to give a synopsis of the life of Jesus? That's what Peter attempts to do in his sermon. Peter's message that I just read with you is the apostolic message about Jesus on its most basic form. It's what Bible scholars call the kerygma, the word preached about Christ. It's the gospel. It's the truth. 
And because of that, it's the most consequential message you'll ever hear. God has so orchestrated all the events of your life that today you just heard it. The facts about Jesus, who he is. And so this morning, I want to work our way through this passage, and I want to marvel with you. I just kind of want to stand back and think about the amazing man that is Jesus of Nazareth. And I want to challenge you to ask yourself a simple question. If Jesus is this man that the scriptures claim he is, what am I supposed to do with him? This morning, I want you to leave here knowing that Jesus is God's anointed king who's worthy of everything you are and all that you have. And so let's work our way through and see this bit by bit. But first, a little bit of context. Verses 22 to 36 are the heartbeat of a larger sermon that the apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish festival, the the Feast of Weeks, celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. And it was exactly 50 days after Passover. So the Jews made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year to honor God with the first fruits of their harvest. But this Pentecost had special significance for Jesus' first followers. After he was crucified and resurrected, he spent 40 days with them, explaining to them from the scriptures why it was necessary that he suffered and died the way he did. And then he ascended into heaven. But before he left, he told them, gave them simple instructions. Do not leave Jerusalem, but stay and wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you're going to receive from the Father. And so for 10 days, 120 men and women gathered together in a prayer room, seeking God for his promised spirit. They called out to him day and night, Lord, when are you going to come through on your promise to send your spirit? And on the 10th day, the day of Pentecost, when they were in a prayer room in one heart and one mind, crying out to God, He answered their prayer, and he sent his spirit from heaven. He he shook the foundations of the room they were in and filled them up so that they started speaking in all kinds of languages. Immediately, they spilled out into the streets, and all the people who had gathered for this annual pilgrimage festival heard a crazy commotion coming from down the street. And so they all rushed over to see what was going on, and they deduced fairly quickly that these people were either drunk or out of their minds. Nobody ever does anything like this. But as they listened closer, they began to hear the good news about Jesus in their own languages. People from Africa and from Asia and from the Middle East and from Europe, all around the Mediterranean, heard the good news about Christ in their mother tongue. Peter, filled with the Spirit as the recognized spokesman of the apostles, stood up to preach the message that we just read. He wanted everyone to understand where this commotion started. It started because Jesus, God's anointed king, had poured out his spirit just as he said he would, marking the end of days and the beginning of some grand new event. By the time we get to verse 22, he's prepared the people for the heart of his sermon, the hinge of his argument, when he lays the guilt for Jesus' crucifixion at their feet. But first, he pointed to Jesus' life. He pointed to Jesus' life. He says in verse 22, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
He called the people to recognize something that by that point was common knowledge among the Jewish people of their day. That when Jesus appeared preaching the gospel of the kingdom, announcing that the time had been fulfilled and the kingdom of God was at hand, he showed up with power. Everywhere he went, he healed sick people. He opened blind people's eyes. He unstopped deaf people's ears. He raised a little girl from the dead. He called his friend Lazarus out of his tomb. He multiplied loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 people. He calmed storms. He spoke and demons fleed from people. Jesus was powerful and everybody knew it. Peter calls on them to recognize who he is in his life, that there's something about this man that you should recognize by now. He says that he was attested by God. This word attested is a Greek word that's used to talk about proof or visible demonstration. Oftentimes it was used to describe a person who had been assigned a specific task and had been authorized to carry it out. Like a police officer who wears a badge. Or like a doctor who has a medical license hanging on the wall in his office. There were certain credentials present in Jesus that should have let everybody know that he was God's anointed king. It was the miracles, the wonders, and the signs which God performed through him. And even in his life, people started asking questions about him. The people said in John 7:31, as they looked at the miraculous things he did, when the Messiah comes, when God's anointed king arrives, is he going to do works more powerful than these? They recognized that God was at work in Jesus in an amazing way they had never seen before, that he was approved by God, that he was being demonstrated as someone worth paying attention to. Jesus' own teaching laid claim to this. He said in John 5, 36, The works I do testify about me, that I'm sent from the Father. He said in Matthew 12, 28, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, watch out, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Peter asked the people to recognize that in Jesus' life, he was visibly demonstrated and proven to be God's anointed king. I mean, think about it. Jesus lived the greatest life that has ever been lived, full of more miracles than anyone else could lay claim to. He is God in the flesh, one capable of doing something that no one else can do. Just by his life, we ought to see him as God's king. But of course, people in every generation take a good long look at him and decide that he's not worth their attention at all. That's what happened in his own generation. And after he lived his life, Peter pointed to his death as evidence that he was God's anointed king. I mean, despite the obvious proof, God's public demonstration of Jesus as the one who came in power, he was rejected by his people, and he died on the cross. But Peter would have us know that even in his death, God was demonstrating him as king. You know, John says in the beginning of his gospel that Jesus came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. And, and that's certainly the case. The Jewish people of Jesus' day rejected him outright. And I think there's a few reasons for that, and you could probably come to these yourself, but I was thinking about him this week. Number one, his miracles drew too much attention and therefore threatened to upend the status quo of their comfortable religious life. They had their routines and their rituals. But all of a sudden, here's Jesus healing people and attracting crowds and changing things from the way they have always been. On top of that, his message, message of forgiveness and the free grace of God, 
poured out on anybody who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. I mean, that was destabilizing for the usual center of religious authority down there in Jerusalem called the temple, where people showed up with their sacrifices, trusting that if they offered them in the right way and with the right heart, that God would forgive them of their sins. But instead, Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Then you've got this gospel of the kingdom, which at least implicitly is politically revolutionary and threatened to bring down Roman oppression on this area of the empire that had a certain autonomy and self-rule. But whatever the case was, after three years of scheming and plotting and finding ways to sort of undermine who Jesus was, the religious leaders finally convinced one of his best friends to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And after a mock trial where false witnesses couldn't even keep their story straight, they beat Jesus and handed him over to the Romans who crucified him mockingly underneath a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But Peter's sermon tells us that Jesus wasn't the helpless victim of empire, the strong defeating the weak. Instead, he was a God's anointed king, and his death happened according to plan. See, Jesus died as a willing sacrifice, not a helpless victim. He did so to fulfill the promises of salvation contained in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, which says in Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and as by his scourging we are healed. All of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to their own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus didn't die a haphazard death, a helpless victim. He was sent there by God to suffer for you and me. Not only that, Peter later says in 1 Peter 1, verse 18, that you weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from the feudal way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God. Jesus' death was according to plan, that even in that moment when he looked to be at his weakest and most helpless, God was active revealing him to be his king. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps it's conceivable that one would die for a good man. But God showed his love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God wasn't surprised by Jesus' death. He wasn't caught off guard. God didn't abdicate control of the universe for the split second when Jesus' betrayers rolled into Gethsemane. It all happened according to the foreknowledge, by which Peter surely means God's ability to see all things before they happen. From before the foundation of the world, he knew 
that when the time was right, his son would come from heaven to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, and to suffer and die on the cross. He knew that beforehand. But it goes beyond that. That there was a definite plan that God had in his wisdom before he created the world, covenanted together with himself, that he would send his son who would suffer and die to save his people. God knew that he would make him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew that in his love for the world, he would send his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but would have everlasting life. Do you believe that today? Y'all are awful quiet. Now I guess it's just you're soaking it up. Listen, we're right to remember the powerful things Jesus did. The signs and miracles and wonders which God performed through him in the midst of the people who were present during his earthly ministry. But how could we ever forget the cross? How could we let that slip out of our minds for half a second? How could we allow ourselves to overlook the fact that the anointed king, God's own son, took on human flesh, stepped into a broken world so that he could suffer for us? That's the heartbeat of it all. That's where we find our hope and salvation. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's anointed king suffered in your place? Well, then let me tell you the good part. It's not just his death. But in his resurrection and exaltation, God vindicated him as his king. That's where Peter goes next. Verse 24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I love what Peter says later in verse 32. He says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. I love this, because I've never seen Jesus. I've never seen Him with my eyes. I, I behold Him by faith, and I see Him in His Word. But I've yet to see Him face to face. But for Peter... And the other apostles, when Jesus rose again, they ran to the tomb. And when he wasn't there, they went back and he showed up. He busted through a locked door. And when they wondered if it was a ghost or a spirit or a hallucination, he said, hey, come feel. Come put your hands in my wounds. He ate with them, lived with them for 40 days explaining to them everything they needed to know about his resurrection and life. And so when Peter stood up in front of all these peoples and said, this Jesus God raised up, he wasn't banking his message on hope, on theology, on vague abstractions and ideas about what might have been or what could be. He spoke with the authority of personal experience. This Jesus God raised up, and all of us right here, we can testify to it, we've seen him, with our own eyes. They knew it. And as they tried to figure out what that meant, they searched the Old Testament, tried to figure out how it was possible that somebody could be raised from the dead. You see, first century Jews believed that at the end of the world, God would raise up all the righteous to live with him forever in a new kingdom. The Messiah would be on the throne, and he'd reign over all things forever in a perfectly remade world. But nobody, no one, no scholar, no Bible teacher, no rabbi had ever considered that perhaps the resurrection would take place in two parts. Part one, the Messiah himself would be raised. And part two, at the end of the age, he'd raise his people. 
But that's what Peter said happened. That after Jesus was crucified and buried, he was raised. God raised him up. And he says he was raised up because death couldn't hold him in his power. I like that. You know, the power of death is rooted in punishment for sin. God told the first people when he placed them in the Garden of Eden that they only had one rule that they had to obey. You probably know it, right? You're not supposed to eat from the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And when they were tempted, when they disobeyed God's command and rebelled against his authority, God banished them from the garden. And one day, a long time later, because they were pre-sin people, they did die. And everybody since then has died. And everybody alive now will die unless the Lord comes back before we do. But Jesus was free from the affliction of sin. If the wages of sin is death, what business does death have with a sinful person? Has no claim over him whatsoever. It's impossible for Jesus to be held by the power of sin and death. And so God raised him up. Not only that, but as Peter looked in the Old Testament, he found two passages the Spirit guided him to. Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Both written by David, Jesus' ancestor, and the king, famous in the Old Testament. The man chosen by God. A man after God's own heart. A man who brought peace and prosperity on his people like nobody ever thought possible. David depended on God completely. And in chaotic circumstances and situations of his life, he did what you did. He cried out to him in prayer. and said, God, don't forsake me. Don't give me up. I'm trying my best to do what pleases you. Be faithful to me. And that's exactly what Psalm 16 is. It's a, a prayer for God's faithfulness despite the hardships of life. And I'm convinced time and time and time again, David found the God he prayed to in Psalm 16 to be faithful and true. And God came through and blessed him with all kinds of things. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. His heart was trained on God. That's all he wanted was to be near him and to know the blessings of his presence. But Peter said there's only one problem. David prayed a confident and bold prayer at the end of Psalm 16 that didn't come true. He said, You won't abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And that's beautiful. That's the kind of verse you got to think that if David had a coffee mug, it was on there. You know, he's thinking to himself every morning about God's faithfulness, not to let him suffer decay. And yet, Peter says, there's one problem. David died, and his bones are in the tomb over there that you can still go and visit. So who could he be talking about? What king was free from decay and corruption? What king had an empty tomb? He said, being a prophet, Jesus was foreseen by his ancestor David. And he knew that God had promised him in 2 Samuel 7 that there would always be a son on David's throne. It would be a son to God. And so David, looking through time, unaware, speaking better than he even knew, saw Jesus, his descendant. And he said, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Peter was convinced that if Jesus had been resurrected, then he was the Messiah. And because of his resurrection, all of his people had hope. 
that when God raised him up, he vindicated him, proving him to be the person he said he was, a man righteous, sent from God, authorized and approved by the powerful things he did, and now living and reigning forever. And because he's alive, you know that you have hope. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to a living hope, to an inheritance that's imperishable. It's not going to rot. It's undefiled. And it's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you, who by faith are being guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the Jesus who was raised from the dead, the one who was vindicated and who now lives and reigns as God's king forever. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ first, as the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. So Peter says, take a good hard look at him. In his resurrection, you see the king. But the resurrection isn't the end to Jesus' story. Peter goes on to talk about his exaltation. He says in verse 33, you still got your Bible out, right? Verse 33, okay. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. That, so that's 36. Just thinking about how good it was that I reminded you to have your Bible out. Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. See, here's the deal. The resurrection and exaltation are tied together for Peter. That when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't stop. He took a momentary brief pause. But 40 days later, he kept on going. And he rose up to heaven where he sits at God's right hand. He quotes from Psalm 110, which declares from God to the Messiah that he's going to sit at his right hand, the place of power and honor until all his enemies are under his feet. And I can confidently say to you today, that the Jesus Peter declared as having been exalted at God's right hand is still right there. He's still ruling and reigning over all things. He still sends blessings from heaven, sends his Holy Spirit, who enables us by faith to take hold of all the promises of God, who empowers us to live a life that's pleasing to him, who sends us out to make the good news known to all the world. Jesus is still on his throne in heaven from where he rules over his church, guiding and directing us, fulfilling his promise to build the church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's still in heaven from where we wait for him, hopingly, longingly, looking forward to the day when he returns to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, where his will is perfectly done, where death and sin is no more. Peter says, look at him, risen and exalted, and you see the king. Friends, unlike the biographies of great people, world history, you can't sift through the ordinary and mundane with Christ. Nothing about him is ordinary or mundane. He lived the greatest life that's ever been lived, 
approved and demonstrating from God his great power. When he suffered and died, God didn't abandon him or let his body see corruption. He raised him up again, and he exalted him to his right hand. The way one pastor of the last century put it, he said, here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village, and he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for, 30 years, he was an ite- for three years, he was an itinerant teacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never traveled, except in his infancy, more than 200 miles from his home. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness from the world's perspective. And he had no credentials but himself. When he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends all ran away from him. One of them denied him three times. Then he was turned over to his enemies. He went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he ever owned, his seamless robe. And when he was dead, he was taken down from the cross and laid in a borrowed grave only because of the kindness of a friend. But after three days... He rose again, and his followers have spread his message over the face of the earth. And now, 19 centuries have come and gone. And today, he's the centerpiece of the human race. I'm well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that were ever built, all the governments that ever ruled, and all the kings, King George included, that ever reigned, put together, haven't affected the life of man upon earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. Jesus is God's anointed king. Because of that, he's worthy of all that you are and all that you have. You know, the people who heard Peter's first sermon were cut to the heart. So they asked, brothers, what must we do? What do you think? What should we do? Hey, the first amen I got all day. Thank you so much. Been preaching my guts out up here, finally. What should we do? What should you do? Let's pray.